0: We're going to look at these final two paragraphs that deal with who should and should not partake of the Lord's Supper. And, and if you're thinking, at, based on last week and this week, it, it seems like we're really picking up speed here. I've tried to plan out our confessional studies so that we're finished with our confession before I leave uh, for Malawi at the end of September, so that, that'll be a, a clean break, and when there's not a big, huge gap, and when I come back, we can pick up with something different. Um, so we're going to finish this chapter, paragraph 7 and 8, this evening, and what we see really is two strands of doctrine from earlier in the confession coming together in these two paragraphs, those two being the spiritual nature of the church and the ecclesiastical nature of the Lord's Supper. In chapter 26, we learn that the church is to be constituted only of those who have partaken in the invisible work of grace that is performed in us and upon us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Though we are fallible and we can be deceived and many times have been deceived, a church should aim at a regenerate membership, a purely regenerate membership. Church members should be Christians. That's what we that's what I'm calling the spiritual nature of the church. In chapter 28 we learned both of baptism and the Lord's supper that they are ordinances given from Christ to and exclusively to the church. So ultimately it is the church who administers the sacraments through the hands of those have been who've been set aside for the ministry. So only those coming into church membership should be baptized, only church members should be partaking of the Lord's Supper. So, if church members are supposed to be Christians and only church members are to partake of the Lord's Supper, that gives us a little bit of a hint as to who ought to be coming to the Lord's table. That specifically would be regenerate believers and church members. Now, I want to pick up in paragraph seven, which I've entitled the blessing for worthy receivers. That is, those who should be partaking of the Lord's table. There is a blessing. And I'll read the paragraph now. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, receive... And feed upon Christ crucified, and all the benefits of His death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Now, if if, if you're like me, when you put that many commas and semicolons in a paragraph, it can get quite confusing, uh, and I'll, I'll try to. Make it a little more clear. The first thing that we see is the recipients of the blessing. Now, this paragraph doesn't just come out and say, "Here's who should come to the table," because the scriptures don't do it in that form. Here's who should come to the table. They they more or less describe a manner of coming that says, "When you come in this way, that is what makes you, or, or that's what evidences that you are a worthy." Receiver. So we'll get to more of that distinction of worthy and unworthy in the, the last paragraph. But this does begin with a phrase which sets us up for that distinction, which is worthy receivers. Now when we see the word worthy, that leads us to assume that we're going to talk about unworthy receivers. In this paragraph, we learn that only the worthy receivers... Receive the blessings of the Lord's Supper or that it's meant to convey. And therefore, we need to understand that the Lord's Supper is not like a magical formula or a mystical recipe that can be enacted by anyone. You've, you've seen in movies or read in, in stories, somebody might open up a book of spells. And, and the idea is basically, if you read these words, be careful because just saying these words out loud will... will create something. The Lord's Supper is not like that. The Bible doesn't say, now if you eat this bread and drink this wine and somebody says these things, everybody who participates in that immediately receives a blessing. That, that's not the way it works. It, it's not like that. There is a certain kind of person who will benefit from the Lord's Supper. And we see that in the word worthy. Whoever, this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, 27. Paul says, whoever eats or therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now there, again, we have the word unworthy, but he doesn't say, but here's who's worthy. He just has been describing the way we ought to come. And the way we ought to come is sort of what establishes what is worthy. We don't see a reference in there to, well, whoever drinks worthily, we only see in an unworthy manner. The unworthiness that's mentioned, implies that there is a worthy manner. And partaking in a worthy manner is something that isn't addressed according to who is worthy. It doesn't, we don't just have a list. Here's the kind of person who's worthy. It just, it, it, he addresses it according to what constitutes worthy participation. So, again, in the text, we have unworthy, which implies there are worthy recipients. In the confession, we have worthy recipients, which implies there are unworthy recipients. There are some who are worthy, there are some who are not worthy. The next word is the word receivers. Worthy receivers, which reminds us that the Lord's Supper is not merely taken, it's received. Again, it is the church through the office of the elders that administers the Lord's Supper. So those who partake of the Lord's Supper are recipients. Of the Lord's Supper. It is administered. We don't just come and take it, we are admitted to the table and we receive the supper. And that goes for elders as well as, as laymen. All of us. We we don't get to just come and, and grab it. I can only come because I've been received into the membership of this church. So we're receiving the Lord's Supper. The recipients of the blessings of the Lord's Supper are those who are called worthy recipients. And so without going into a lot of detail, we at least learn that there are some who are worthy, there are some who are unworthy, and hopefully it, it, we understand it behooves us to know the difference. We want to find out, am I worthy or unworthy? The second thing we see is the circumstance of the blessing. There are blessings. The recipients are those who are worthy. Now what is the circumstance of the blessing? Or on what occasion can these worthy receivers expect to receive the blessing of the Lord's Supper? What's the circumstance? Well, the Confession uses these words. Outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance. That is, when they actually participate in the essential physical observance of the supper. Or we would say, when they eat the bread and drink the wine of the supper. That is, when they come to the table. It's interesting when you pay attention to Scripture that both the blessings and the curses that are associated with the Lord's Supper are directly associated with the physical act of the bread and the wine. 1 Corinthians 11, the, the longest passage in Scripture that deals with the Lord's Supper, is all about when they were actually literally coming to the table. When you come together as a church, when you come to the table, that was the idea. When they were sitting down and participating There are other occasions when someone may eat bread or drink wine and it will have no spiritual meaning at all and it doesn't require any acting of the soul and they don't need to fear judgment. They don't need to fear a curse. Why? Because they're not coming to the Lord's table. And there are times when the soul might be quite active in meditating upon Christ crucified and receive a blessing from that and you're not coming to the Lord's table. That's just in your, own, in your own time. But here what we're talking about is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper itself requires both the physical act and the spiritual act of the inner man. Neither one of these are what we would call accidental in the, in the old use of the word, meaning they're not just sort of extra things added to it. You can't come to the Lord's Supper and say, Well, I'm, I'm going to come to the Lord's table and I might eat some bread and drink some wine too. No, that's essential to it. Without that, you don't have the Lord's table. The internal act of the soul and the physical act, they're both required in what we call the Lord's Supper. And so what we're being reminded here is that the blessings that come in the Lord's Supper are directly associated with the outward partaking of the elements. That's why they've been given when when we come. Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance The third thing that we see is the means of blessing. How how does this actually become a blessing to us? If both outward and inward acts are required for the proper observance, what is the means by which we are spiritually blessed? The confession reads, when these worthy receivers partake outwardly, the next phrase is, do then, that is in that act of, of partaking outwardly, they also inwardly... so. There's an outward act and an inward act together. They do also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. Now there's a little bit of a back and forth here. I want to take all of the positive statements and group them together. This is the means of the blessing. Worthy receivers partaking of these outward elements, do then, in, in, the, in the act of partaking, inwardly by faith, really and indeed, spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. In other words, the worthy receiver receives the blessings of the Lord's Supper as they partake of the elements, when, by faith, they receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. In other words, it's not just the outward and external, It must be the outward and external along with the internal uh, reception of faith. The confession here takes us to 1 Corinthians 10, which we've read, where Paul addresses this issue as well. Verse 16, he says, "...the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ?" The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Remember that word participation is the word koinonia. There's a, a, a fellowship here that, re, that is resulting in bestowed blessings to us as we participate in the blood and the body of Christ. And notice he ties that directly to the cup and the bread. The cup that we bless, the bread that we break. So the activity of the Lord's Supper done in faith brings us into the fellowship of these bestowed blessings. So again, what is the means of the blessing? How do we come to receive the blessings of the Lord's table? The answer is the means is faith. Faith. Not just eating and drinking. Eating and drinking is required if you're going to come to the Lord's table. But eating and drinking must be accompanied by faith. We receive by faith. Receiving and feeding upon Christ crucified by faith. And then the negative part of that statement was yet not carnally or corporally. Again, we reject the doctrine of transubstantiation. We reject the doctrine of the mass. And so we reject the notion that the blessings are conveyed to us just because we put bread and, and wine into our mouths. That the bread and wine themselves are essentially, if you put them under a microscope, bread and wine, that's, that's what they are. You don't get a blessing just because you shove it in your mouth. The blessing comes, we could say, as you shove it in your mouth, but also by faith, feed upon Christ crucified. Now, I think it's important to ask, what does it mean to feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death by faith? What does that mean? This is one of those statements that we... or or the the kind of terminology that is used often, but a lot of times we leave saying, what are are you talking about? What does that mean? I'm I'm not computing, feeding on Christ. Sam Waldron puts it this way. He says that this is, quote, believingly to appropriate Him, that is Christ, and all the covenant blessings purchased by His broken body and shed blood. Now, to appropriate means to take something for yourself. So it is to appro- believingly to appropriate to take for yourself Christ and all the covenant blessings purchased by His broken body and shed blood. And this is why the imagery of bread and wine are so useful. And the illustration would really work with any kind of food and drink. But bread and wine are are, are given for specific purposes. Think of it this way. Uh, Food and drink on the table do me no good. If I come into the kitchen every day, three times a day, and I look at food and drink on the table, and then I walk out and leave, in in about three days, I'm going to be a dead man. They're going to do me no good. Right? I have to appropriate these things for me. Take them for me. So I have to recognize, and and we don't know this, or we we don't do this... uh, This act of our minds doesn't usually happen in a way that we we, uh, sense it. But what happens is we recognize this is food and drink. This food and drink is is for my nourishment. It's for me. It's good for me. It's been given for me. And if I am going to live at this time, then I need to take this food and this drink and I need to put it into my body. And then when you do that, your body is going to take that food and drink and it'll take all of the nutrients that it, it needs and it'll take them and put them everywhere they need to go to make sure that you survive. That's appropriation. Now, all of that's physical. That's easy to understand. I grab it with my hand. I use my fork. I use my spoon. I wipe my mouth. That's easy. But we're talking here about faith. When we come to the Lord's Supper, outwardly, yes, we eat and drink. But we must also, inwardly, by faith, as we eat and drink, appropriate Christ crucified for ourselves. It's, we, and we do this by faith, remember, which is a habit of the soul. And remember that faith receives its substance from the Word of God. There, there is understood here that we are going to be bringing to our minds what God's Word teaches about Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. So we come and we're, we're recognizing. Hopefully, when I get through with this list, what you're going to understand is when we come to the Lord's table, as we're going through the process, your mind is active. This, this is not just get quiet and wait to get the stuff. and, and No, your mind is thinking. You're working. It, it might be the most actively mental, uh, most active mental thing that you'll do the whole service. In preaching, a lot of times you can just sit and kind of hear and you're, you're you know, getting a thing or two here or there. But in the Lord's Supper, it's all quiet and it's you and you must engage in this. You have to recognize that Christ's person and work is salvation and it is nourishment to the soul. And so we are going to be bringing to our minds what the Bible teaches about Christ's death, about the benefits of Christ's death. We're going to acknowledge that this is what is needed for the the sinful state of my soul. And by faith, we're going to be resting ourselves in what Christ has done. You, You might even do this. This is biblical. Not verbally, but internally. You might be saying to yourself, Soul, here in Christ's work is all that is needed for you. Rest here. See this. Consider it. Dwell upon it. Rest in it. And, and you, you, again, you might even be rehearsing to yourself distinct benefits and blessings and promises of coming that come from Christ's death. You might have to, in that moment, work to spurn the thoughts of self-righteousness or, or worldly thoughts that are entering into your mind. And you say, no, right now I have to, I have to bring my mind to settle down on Christ crucified and the benefits. This is why for me sometimes it's very helpful to have a Bible open in front of me, to look at passages of Scripture, to read something that I can go to that, that will very quickly I know will bring to my mind the work of Christ crucified. Isaiah 53 is a great one. It's a, it's a big section of just nuggets and I can just feed on that. I'm just bringing to my mind what God has said about this and I am in my soul taking this for me. I'm saying this, what the Bible says about this Christ i' I'm, I'm I'm taking that I'm going to rest in that in the Lord's table. that's what we do when we do this, we really and indeed spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death and I, And I'll say at this point that we we can be tempted to think that if we do this just right that every time we're going to hear sort of the 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 crescendoing symphony in our souls and we just enter into this, this feeling of uh, superlative um, ecstasy every time. It's probably not going to happen. And that's why it is a work of faith. You're working and, and, and bringing to your mind what God has said, right? We, we, we feed upon Christ crucified. We don't feed on our ability to, to feed on it and our, our capability to really have an emotional experience, although from time to time you, you, you will have... Uh, or we'll be greatly blessed in that meditation. And it should always be... We, we should strive for a, at least a resolute confidence in what Christ has done. At, at least that. So what is a worthy receiver? One who, while outwardly partaking of the elements, also goes about this business of the heart and mind and spiritually receives and feeds upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death... And I would say, again, this is assuming a a born-again believer because a lost person can't do this. And because it is an ecclesiastical ordinance, this would be a member of the church who's coming in and doing this. This is what makes it worthy. A worthy receiver is not someone who has uh, adequately confessed all of their sins and their their record is completely clean and now they can finally come to the Lord's table. That's not what we're talking about here. The fourth... Thing that we see is the mode of the blessing. How how does this blessing come to us? The confession says the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to the outward senses. So, how does the blessing come? Not corporally, not carnally, not in some physical way associated with the physical elements, it's spiritual. The mode of the blessing is spiritual. It's communicated to the soul through the acting of faith. And as we've seen before, most of the working of grace and the working of the Spirit is not an instantaneously felt step up to the next degree of glory, you know, from one degree of glory. You're not feeling that that upstepping every time. I'm I'm getting higher. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. No, it's going to be a sequence of a lifetime of bringing yourself to meditate upon Christ that you'll be able to look back upon and see where you've grown. It's not something physical. By faith, what the confession is saying is by faith, Christ is as near to our souls as the bread and wine are to our smell and our taste. And that's an important factor uh, for, or an important thing about sacramental uh, observance in physical things. I'm eating bread. This bread's not doing anything to me. Drinking wine. This wine by itself is not doing anything to me. But by faith, Christ is as near to me as this bread in my mouth. This wine in my taste that I can, I can taste it. He's, he's that near to me by faith. Paul says, this is not referenced in the confession, but I think this is related. In Romans chapter 10, he says, The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the Word of faith we proclaim. Now here he's talking about preaching, and what he's saying is you don't have to go up into heaven to get Christ. You don't have to go down into the abyss to bring Christ up. No, when the, when the, the gospel, the message of justification by faith is proclaimed in that act, Christ is brought forth because you're setting Christ before the the eyes of faith of the people. That's how He's brought near. And the Lord's Supper is a sermon in visible mode. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread and when He had given thanks He broke it. And said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. In other words, as you partake in the Lord's supper, there is a sense in which you are preaching. The congregation, as an assembly, is preaching. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. And when Christ is proclaimed, He comes near to the hearts of the faithful. And when He comes near, He applies the benefits of His work to the soul of the one believing. That's why we call it a means of grace. He comes near and He administers grace. You, you don't feel it. There's no plug-in. There's no, no, nothing like that. You're not feeling grace pumping into you. It is, it is a mysterious and spiritual thing, but He does this. Why, why do we believe that this is a means of grace? Because the Bible says so. It's not something we feel. He says that it is. So there are great blessings to be received at the Lord's table. These benefits are only available to those who are worthy receivers. That is, those who come in faith, believing savingly upon Christ and His finished work. That's what we would call a worthy receiver. Now, paragraph 8. It deals with those who would attempt to come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner or who who might come unworthily without knowing it. It, This is a warning. I've called this paragraph a warning for unworthy receivers. And I'll read it now. All ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so they are unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against him, while they remain such, partake of these holy ministries, mysteries, or be admitted, admitted thereunto. Yea, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. If I summarize the warning, I would say this. Coming to the Lord's table unworthily will result in great sin... And you will be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. That's a warning. First, we see the recipients of this warning. They're labeled all ignorant and ungodly persons. Now, when it says ignorant, it's not talking about people who are just mentally uneducated or untaught or unlearned. This is talking about people who are ignorant of God, ignorant of salvation, spiritually blind, we would say, and ungodly. That would be those whose lives are clearly void of any work of God. The ignorant and ungodly, these are lost people. That's the recipients of the warning. The second thing we see is the root of the warning. It says, As they are unfit, to enjoy communion with Christ. These ignorant and ungodly people are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ. So the, the, the root of this warning is the nature of the ignorant and ungodly as unfit to have communion with Christ. If the Bible teaches anything, it teaches the unspotted purity of God and His Christ and that nothing impure can endure the presence of God's perfection. Therefore, the unrighteous cannot share communion with God. We see this in various images in scripture. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden of Eden, that's a picture that's showing you cannot share communion with this holy God. It's seen in the rites of the purification for the tabernacle and the temple. God is holy. If you're going to come here, this is the process that you must go through to come into His presence. We see it in church discipline. If somebody's going to remain unrepentant, then there has to be an excommunication. Why? Because you cannot come into the assembly of the Lord and remain in that condition. And it will be seen in the final judgment when the wicked are cast out of God's sight forever. God is holy. God is pure. The unrighteous cannot have communion with Him. Proverbs 15, 29 says the Lord is far from the wicked. They cannot come near. And so just as they are unfit to share communion with God, so they are unworthy of the Lord's table. Remember, 1 Corinthians 10 teaches that, the, that when we come to the table, it's communion with Christ, a participation in the body and the blood of Christ. We call the Lord's Supper communion because it's meant to be a time of communion with God in Christ. The wicked cannot share that communion. Therefore, they are unworthy of the Lord's table. You see, that's the reasoning. So, this warning stems from the fact that fallen men apart from Christ are unfit by nature to have communion with God. They are unfit by nature to do the very thing that the Lord's table is meant to facilitate communion. Thirdly, the reason Behind the warning. The reason that the warning is given is seen in what is at stake if the ungodly come to the table unworthily. It says these unworthy ones cannot, without great sin against him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. In other words, as long as they remain in this state of unregeneracy, of of ignorant and ungodly, as long as that's their condition, if they come to the table or if they are admitted to the table, it will result in great sin. Great sin. So the reason behind the warning is that we want to avoid great sin. Hopefully, we're all in agreement there. We don't want to sin. I find myself sinning. I don't want to sin. I don't run into sin willingly. Right? We want to avoid sin. Now, notice this phrase. That's one side of it, but notice this other phrase. Or be admitted thereunto. So there is an approach. There is a coming to the table by the communicants you come to the lord's table but there is also an admission to the table by the church the church admits people to the table or bars them from the table and so there we need to understand that there's potential for great sin on different fronts here the one coming unworthily it can be will be guilty of great sin if he comes but what about those who knowingly admit people to the table who are unworthy. They'll also be guilty of great sin. Now, I don't think that the church or the elders would be at fault if they have been deceived or tricked. But that doesn't mean that all we look for is a verbal profession of faith and nothing more. Well, they said they were a Christian. I'll just take the word for it. Surely we understand there needs to be a little bit more than that. If, we're, if, if the thing at stake here is avoiding great sin. Historically, at a minimum, church membership was necessary. And membership entailed a, a kind of examination. A membership interview, if you will. And in many instances, amongst the Baptists especially, communion was reserved for the members of that particular church. We call that closed communion. It was reserved. That, what that does is it guarantees that the, the church and the elders have done their due diligence as much as they can to examine the members so that those who come to the table, they can say with a clear, a clear conscience, they're worthy. Uh, other churches have done this sort of thing as well, even though they may not uh, consider it uh, close communion. There, there was a, various denominations who their elders would go about. They, they didn't have the Lord's Supper every week. But when communion season was coming, there was a particular time it was coming, the elders would make all of the rounds, interview all of those who were aspiring to come to the table, and if you passed the interview, they would give you a token. And when it came time to come to the Lord's table, you gave that token as sort of your ticket to the Lord's table. That, that was how they, they were trying to make sure we're not admitting people who are unworthy as much as we can help it. Now our confession here references 2 Corinthians 6. You can turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 and 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? In this passage, there is a command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then there are four rhetorical questions that are meant to be taken as positive assertions. We we would say in this way. Righteousness has no partnership with lawlessness. Light has no fellowship with darkness. Christ has no accord with Belial. A believer shares no portion with an unbeliever. In other words, there's no common bond or union between that which is God's and that which is opposed to God. These things don't come together. They don't mix. And therefore, as it regards the Lord's table, it's unnatural and, and a blasphemous undertaking For those who are by nature enemies of God, enemies of Christ, to come and participate in this ordinance which is meant only for those who are able to treasure and appreciate and receive its blessings. The purpose of close and closed communion. Close would be sort of what we practice now. Members of this church, and if somebody can verify their membership in a like-minded church, that's called close. Close. Closed would be only members of this church um, and and no outsiders if you're passing through. Love you, glad to have you. Good luck getting back to your home church, etc. Um, but the reason that those views have been taken is to do all in the power of the church to avoid this great sin of admitting someone to the table who should not come. The concept of open communion... Uh, just anybody who's here who wants to come, that, that's, that's pretty much uh, been a, a very minority view amongst people that we would consider Orthodox Christians. Now, there are lots of people who do it um, today. It, it, it might be the predominant activity today in apostate churches. Anybody who wants to come, come on up. Uh, but, that, but that's not been the norm. We want to avoid great sin. The fourth thing that we see is the results of ignoring this warning. Yea, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord and eating and drinking judgment to themselves. And this takes us back to 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 29 which says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. To eat and drink without discerning the body would be to come to the Lord's table, this is the way I would describe it, without peeling back the external and physical layers of the sacrament and looking beyond them in faith to the reality that they are meant to signify, namely the body and blood of Christ. Uh, discerning, peeling back, um, dividing things apart, defi- d- dividing bread and wine, from the thing that it's meant to signify. If you don't discern the body, you're basically stopping at bread and wine and you're saying, this is, this is as far as it goes. To discern the body is to peel back the layers of the external and look beyond them in faith to the, the spiritual reality. So to come without discerning the body is to come either unable or unwilling to see beyond the physical elements usually because you have no spiritual comprehension of the realities of Christ's atoning work. You can't. You're blind to see beyond them. Christ said, and this is another verse that's referenced, Matthew 7, 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Dogs and pigs are unable to appreciate holy things. It's contrary to their nature to see any value in anything valuable. They don't care. They don't understand. They don't don't discern valuable and invaluable. So also with the Lord's Supper, we must guard the holy things of God from those who have no spiritual nature to see through them to the reality. Now it's interesting. I, I thought of this just this afternoon. He's... He says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Now, if you held out a handful of pearls before a, a dog or a pig, uh, they may want to snort and sniff and lick and, and, and whatever. They may be, in other words, they may be willing to take whatever you've got. They're just unable to see the value of it. What he's commanding is, don't offer it to them. Don't be in that position. Don't, don't hold it out and say, well, if they take it, that's on them. No, it's holy things. Guard it, which I think might be a good argument for a closed communion. To do this, if someone does this, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. Remember that the Lord's Supper always accompanies the preaching of the Word. One who comes to the table unworthily without discerning the body of the Lord then has essentially entered into what we might call the holiest of holy places on the earth. It's not a location, but it's a situation in which Christ has been brought near through the preaching of the gospel, and the people of God are entering into a time of covenantal dining with Christ. I think uh, related to uh, when Aaron and the elders went up on the mountain and ate and drank before God. I I think there's a relationship there, a covenantal meal in the presence of God. So what they've done is they've come in, they've heard the preaching of the Word. Now the people of God are going to to enter into this holy of holies on earth, a, a very holy act. And they come in, they ignore the Christ who's been set forth. They rob the table of the elements that are meant to press those realities upon their conscience. In order to do this, they would have to purposefully, willfully and ignore and spurn Christ in order to do this they have to hear it all experience it all and say I'm not going to pay any attention to that I'm just going to eat and drink which requires actually a lot of activity upon their or from their souls rebellious activity and therefore they're guilty of the body and blood of Christ they eat and drink judgment on themselves in the words of Hebrews we could say they are enlightened. They taste the heavenly gift. They share in the work of the Holy Spirit. They taste the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come. And then they essentially crucify Christ, the Son of God, to their own harm, holding Him up to contempt. They say, I'll take these things that are meant to turn me to Him and I'll just ignore Him altogether. In essence, trampling Him again. They, they, they determine, I'm going to hear all of this, participate in all these things, and I'll, I'll walk right back out this door and continue living exactly how I came in. Again, they crucify once again the Son of God. Like pigs with no spiritual sense at all, they treat the supper as if there were never a Christ at all. And so this is the warning, and this is why we ought to take it seriously as we come to the table and examine ourselves ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, make our calling and election sure, bring our sins to Christ. If you're not willing to bring your sins to Christ and entrust yourself upon Him, you're not a Christian. That, that, that's, our, that's our life. That's, that's the way we live. So let, let this, these two paragraphs be first an encouragement to us. There are great blessings to those who will come to the table worthily. Those who come in faith believing savingly upon Christ and His finished work. Which means we have to do the work necessary. When we come to the table, as often as we come to the table, do the mental and spiritual work of feeding on Christ. Stir up your soul. Stir up your faith. When you're sluggish, we're all sluggish. When you're sluggish, pray and ask for strength. Appropriate Christ's work for you. Enjoy His blessings. This might mean preparing before the service for the Lord's Supper. Get ready. Be be thinking about what it's going to require of you to do this spiritual and mental work of feeding upon Christ. And there's a great blessing there. But this is also a warning. There are great judgments reserved for those who come unworthily. If you're not a Christian, there's no way you can come to the table of the Lord in a worthy manner. It's not possible. Now I want to end with this one phrase from that last paragraph. Four words. While they remain such. If you're not a Christian, you do not need to remain such. You don't have to stay that way. You don't have to stay lost. Almighty God sent His Son... To live and die for sinners. He held him forth in promises and prophecies from the very beginning of time. He placarded him before the world on the cross so that he would be seen as the only one able to save. He now makes sure that Christ is held up in the preaching of the gospel all around the world, all the time. And He's given us the Lord's Supper as a means to put Christ on display in an extraordinary and yet ordinary way, week after week after week until He returns. Now surely in all of that we would be able to discern this thing about God. He is willing to save. He's willing to save. God is not willing that you perish God is not willing that you remain a sinner. If you remain a sinner, it's not on God. It's on you. God's God's placarded Himself. I am Savior. I am Redeemer. Everywhere. If men won't come, if men remain in that state, in the judgment, you'll have to say, I remained a sinner because I wanted to. I chose that. God says... Come to me through my Son, and I will save you forever. And that's what the Lord's Supper teaches. That's what we were being reminded of every week in the Lord's Supper. I'm coming to God through Christ. Because He said, if I'll come this way, He'll save me forever. Let's pray, and then we'll stand and sing together.